You're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm Dinah Jensen. This is The Scoop. I'm in the virtual studio today with Professor Christian Leiprecht, Professor of Political Studies at Queen's University and Professor in Leadership in the Department of Political Science and Economics at the Royal Military College here in Kingston. Welcome, Christian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we are discussing pro-Trump supporters storming the Capitol literally as we speak in Washington, D.C., Can you bring us up to speed, Christian? Tell us what's happening in Washington today. Why are pro-Trump supporters flooding the U.S. Capitol building as Congress debates Electoral College objections? Yeah, so of course, there's sort of always the the near and the further sort of explanations for what we're seeing. I think in the media, this is, of course, an expression, I think, by a... Um, a, a a small yet vocal and non-trivial minority of Americans um, who um, have disavowed the basic premise of the social contract in a democracy that on the one hand, you disavow violence to sort out your political differences and ideological differences. And that on the other hand, you respect the democratic institutions in general and the legislative institutions in particular to reconcile those political and ideological differences and that they've clearly lost faith in both the institution's uh, ability to do that and in the system that ultimately generates those particular, uh, those particular institutions. So I think it's, it's bad news for this, the social contract in the US. Um, it's also bad news for democracy in the US. Uh, but it's probably also bad news for democracy more broadly because a country that suffers these sorts of challenges can then hardly be sort of a leader of the democratic world um, internationally. And I think this will mean that uh, the U.S. um, for the next four years will be consumed with domestic internal challenges, which means it's simply not going to have uh, the presence and energy internationally that Canada and other allies will need when we see democracy under siege more uh, more broadly. But like the broader, I think, challenge that we see is that this is a manifestation of really, on the one hand, going back to the Obama era where Republicans made hay for two terms of Obama that the country was going to hell in the handbasket under Democrats in general and under the Obama presidency in particular, which of course then Trump capitalized on in his election campaign and throughout his presidency. But I think going back further a good 20 years or so, uh, the broader on the one hand polarization of US society, but I would say also a broader feeling both in particular by people who hold more extreme views on both sides of the political spectrum, left and right, that US political institutions, democratic institutions are no longer serving their interests or what they perceive to be the collective and common interests of the United States and of Americans. And so really this is, I think, a manifestation of a much broader challenge associated with U.S. democracy and U.S. institutions that has been a long time coming. Okay. All right. So I do want to return to some ideas here that you've raised about the social contract and and flesh that out a little bit more for our listeners, especially our younger listeners who uh, may not necessarily have expertise or knowledge of really what the social contract is and means in practice. I wonder, though, uh, one of the things that we're seeing right now uh, all over social media are a lot of remarks wondering how and why protesters are so easily able to even enter this building without a lot of police 
police resistance. I looked myself and people are just walking through and uh, there isn't there doesn't seem to be any police presence that I could see in the shots that I had seen. Other comments uh, on social media are speculating too on the response that uh, Black Lives Matter or anti-fascist protesters might have met entering a building like this in protest. Of course, these are speculations. What are your thoughts here? What's going on? How were, are these protesters even in the building at all? Yeah, we had these same debates in Canada, of course, for instance, after the Zihav Bibo attacks on, uh, uh, on, on Parliament. And there's always this, uh, you know, there was a long report done about how we need to secure the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. Um, and anytime there's sort of a significant effort to beef up sort of to harden security, especially visibly at legislative buildings, you tend to see the people's representatives pushing back because this isn't just any one protest in any one building. Mm -hmm. This is ultimately the people's building. And so the people's representatives don't want to be seen as having to defend themselves and their building against the very people that they are meant to represent. Because that's what we see in authoritarian systems where the people aren't even allowed near or into their own legislative buildings, for instance. And so I think the intelligence assessment here was, yeah, there's a significant risk, but at the same time, a, we don't want to be seen as somehow having to hunker down from these protesters because they are citizens, they are Americans, regardless of how objectionable the views are that they might uh, that they might hold. And probably also, there's always this concern that the more presence you show, the more you might end up. Um, agitating or aggravating this particular situation. But I think what this shows is that the preparation was inadequate. They had bad intelligence. And what I'm surprised about, if you, those of us who are old enough to remember the Harris protests um, in the 1990s uh, at Queens Park, when I was going to school just around the corner there, that uh, where, where you had the, the, the uh, police, so, so large police reinforcements uh, lined up in the side street. So they weren't visible for the people or for the cameras, but if you needed them, they could be there in a matter of minutes. And it seems that here it's taking hours just to be able to gather those surge capacities to actually move in and to reinforce the poor capital police that are trying to do their best managing what's clearly gotten out of control. And so I would say that there was bad intelligence um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to have a commission that's going to look into how this could transpire um, um, also in terms of the what appears to be rather poor preparation. Hmm, okay. So I wonder too if there, this might lead us back into our conversation about the social contract where you uh, mentioned that the social contract uh, in, a in a democracy means to forsake violence, to make political differences known instead to uh, respect the legislature as the ultimate arbiter to reconcile such differences. So it seems to me that there's a matter of trust as well from the legislators that the people are trusting them to sort out this business. So maybe that's one of the reasons as well why there doesn't seem to be that much uh, police presence. Uh, am I understanding that correctly? Uh, that's inherent, I think, a confidence and trust in our institutions and the people that we elect. But of course, as we've seen over recent weeks, trust seems to be in very short supply in the United States. Right. And 
Uh, I mean, 22% of the US population are card carrying Republicans and 75% of them believe that the election was rigged. Look, that's about 50 million Americans. Yeah, uh, that's a significant, I think, uh, challenge to US democratic politics. And that's exactly what we see playing out. And so how you rebuild, I mean, it takes a long time, as we all know, to build trust and confidence. Um, but you can shatter it in a matter of, uh, of moments. And so I think the, the rebuilding of trust in what is an increasingly polarized society, uh, I think is going to consume the upcoming uh, administration and not just that administration, but I think US politics for many years to come. Indeed. So what impact do you think that the mob today inside the Capitol itself has on the strength of the social contract overall in the United States, let alone just faith and trust in governance? Look, it's not a fair comparison, but okay. I do have to say that, you know, I'm German by background and I was watching these images and what's going through my mind is 1933 and is the burning down of the Reichstag hmm. and is a mob rule um, of a minority, but a vocal and significant minority at the time in, in the German population. I'm not saying that we're about on sort of a fascist revolution in the United States. Look, the modern state, the modern democratic state is simply too strong. Um, and US institutions and the US state is quite able to, I think, defend uh, its interests against, uh, against mob rule. But I think anytime we see these sorts of, uh, of images, mm -hmm. um, I think it's deeply troubling and it'll evoke, of course, um, circumstances. You know, we've had other breaches of US institutions, famously, of course, the White House that was uh, burned down during the, war, during the War of 1812 to 1814 by, by British regiments. Um, that uh, these are very much, I think, spirits that we see in times of revolutionary moments, not in times of democracy as it normally operates. And so I think uh, it shows us that U.S. institutions and U.S. democracy is really in a crisis moment that is going to require a lot of reflection um, uh, by those people who've been sitting in that house to ask what went wrong, not just tactically today, but what has gone wrong in U.S. politics over recent decades to bring us to this point. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you did talk earlier in our, in our spot today that there could be some impact on the next administration from what's happening now, especially what the recent election cycle and uh, the rise of this very vocal uh, and growing group of disaffected people, uh, many of whom are now uh, on the Capitol. What, is, uh, what must the Biden administration do to govern effectively? It sounds to me, and you've, you've suggested this already, that the Biden administration may be in fact consumed with dealing with the rise of this particular group and continued questions about the authenticity of his presidency. What is this going to do for the Biden administration moving forward in the next four years? I think that's a super interesting question. And I'll circle back to that in 30 seconds with a bit of a prelude here to I think what we're seeing. Okay. So we've talked about the polarization in US politics that sort of really sort of is the track record of the last 20 years or so. And then Trump, both I think for personal reasons as well as for purely instrumental reasons of getting elected, um, uh, capitalizing, instrumentalizing 
the more radical fringes of that. And one of the, the manifestations of the Trump administration has been that rather than the bigger tent that Republicans have traditionally had, which is sort of more affluent people and more educated people in the suburbs, uh, that Trump has really drilled down on the more sort of radical elements um, that have uh, that have supported the uh, the Republican Party, which is also explains, of course, why he's lost so much support in the um, um, in the suburbs. But uh, so so he's given he's effectively given expression to this to, to this uh, smaller but more radical yet non-trivial sized cohort. Um, of the U.S. Uh, of the U.S. electorate, but what we also see is, um, I've talked about the Republicans during the Obama administration chastising uh, Democrats and Trumps for the country going to hell in the handbasket. At the same time, I would say one of the faults, in particular, of the Obama administration is certainly perceived, and I would also say real dismissal of large portions of the US electorate and precisely those people who've doubled down on Trump, who felt that they and their concerns and their points of view were not just completely ignored by the Obama administration and by many of the Democrats who were close to him, but were really dismissed as these people being sort of imbeciles, being idiots, uh, being sort of uneducated, you know, like people who don't need to be taken seriously. And with Biden having been the vice president during that era, there's going to have to be a lot of soul searching also on Biden because he can't simply replicate the Obama type governance because that's going to be a recipe for further disaster in terms of polarization. So he's going to really have to ask himself, what is it that he as his administration in particular, but Congress more broadly um, and the Democratic Party can and need to do to build a, a tent that at least brings these folks in as maybe not sympathizing with Democrats, but at least having a sense that Democrats are on their side and Democrats are not the enemy that Republicans during the Obama administration made Democrats and, uh, and the Obama presidency out to be. And of course, that's what we see. Hmm. We see this discourse, this Republican discourse of Democrats and their elected representatives are the enemy now coming to fruition in the minds of a certain subset of the American population. All right. Well, uh, now with the domestic turn that I think I might agree with you in your statement that there is going to be some kind of domestic turn from the Biden administration looking inward and dealing inward in, over the next four years. Now we have to question what impact that might have on United States international affairs, let alone diplomacy and leadership in world affairs. Biden already had a very full roster of a domestic agenda of things that um, he and his supporters had set out to do. I think this has now uh, added a whole layer of complexity to that layer because it reinforces the extent to which the U.S. needs reconciliation and needs healing at a, at a, at a domestic level. And of course, let's remember, uh, by and large, politicians don't get elected on foreign policy. They get elected on domestic politics. And so I now fear that the U.S. is going to be so consumed with itself, even more so than it has been over the last four years, that it's going to be very difficult to get the sort of international bandwidth 
that is really going to be required. You know, there's been this euphoria across the world about the election of Biden and renewed multilateralism and renewed sort of the renewal of the transatlantic relationship. Uh, and I think those mm -hmm. people will be quite disappointed because the U.S. is going to pursue its particular interests, which is primarily going to be focused, I think, on China and perhaps to a lesser extent on countries such as Iran, North Korea and Russia. But this renewal of somehow unilateral, multilateral leadership, I think we're going to see, continue to see continued U.S. Unilateralism. This is what Biden means when he says America will lead. It's not that America will lead a multilateral coalition. It's that America will call the shots and you get to follow. Uh, and I think if if the U.S. is preoccupied with itself, it's going to be even less amenable to negotiating with its allies and figuring out how, how we can move forward together. So I think this is all going to reinforce the unilateralism that we saw under the Trump administration, only perhaps with a smile from Biden rather than with the frown that we got from Donald Trump. Okay. Have you anything else to add, Christian, before we uh, close today? The U.S. is Canada's most important strategic partner you know, as I always like to say, the Americans are our best friends, whether we like it or not. And so anytime the U.S. is consumed by turmoil, uh, whether it's political um, or economic, it's always bad news for Canada. And so we can only hope for the sake of our own prosperity, social harmony, and for the assertion of our interests more broadly, uh, that America will hunker down and sort out its differences and that we can hope for a better and a brighter future. Um, because I think what we're seeing in the US um, is, uh, is, is uh, risks having deleterious consequences for Canada and Canadian interests. Thank you very much, Christian, for joining us in the virtual studio today to talk about what's happening at the Capitol in, the, in Washington, DC. We really do appreciate your valuable time. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Music